The kids are dismissed for kids' praise at this time. And uh, if you have your Bibles in Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and before I get started, I want to introduce to you friends uh, of mine here, Heather, S.O., and, Z- and Zoe. I was going to say Chloe, Zoe Vega. And they are uh, some of our missionaries here. Go ahead and stand up for a minute so they can see you. Yeah. Uh, they serve with Merge Ministries USA, and, and so if we want to take a mission trip, then we uh, join them like we have in the past, uh, I think twice, if not more, um, at least two times we've been in the Kansas City area, but they'll go anywhere uh, to serve the Lord, and it's very exciting to do so. Well, um, when there are uh, things being built like restaurants in town are being restored, like uh, we're we're getting a, what, a pizza ranch, maybe? I heard rumors of that. We have a Starbucks here in town. I know other communities have other things going on, like Dollar General, I think, maybe in Galva, maybe, or I don't know, different places, and, and Mound Ridge. And, you know, there's always improvements, and whenever there are things being restored or built, then people take notice, and we get kind of excited. We have a hotel going up, and uh, and, and that's awesome. Well, Seven years, this temple was being built during King Solomon's day. And people were so excited. After seven years, they dedicated this temple to the Lord. And King Solomon was presiding, as well as the priests and the prophets. And all of Israel showed up for this magnificent temple dedication. And as they called out to the Lord, as they were making sacrifices to him, then the fire from heaven came down right before their eyes. And they were amazed and then they saw the glory of God fill the temple and around the temple. I don't know what that looked like, but I imagine it had to do with fire as well. And people knew that the God of Israel was alive and real. The glory filled the temple so much so that the priests were unable to enter. And all of the Israelites hit the pavement and they worshiped God and saying, The Lord is good. His love endures forever. This is in Second Chronicles 7. Then King Solomon and all of the priests, they offered up sacrifices. Well, the priests on behalf of Israel, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep and goats were told. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? 144,000 livestock. I wonder how many livestock we serve up at the state fair every year. Well, wonder no more. I looked it up on this worldwide web that's going around. 3,779 in 2021. So around 4,000. And then if you include horses, another maybe couple hundred horses. Well, comparatively, it's nothing compared to what Israel would have seen sacrificed to the Lord. Now, if we had 144,000 livestock in our state fairgrounds in Hutchinson, then, you know, they would we'd see cows taking over everything. They'd be purchasing bed sheets and, and gutter guards and ordering food in the food pavilion, of course, chicken. Except for the chickens, they'd be offering beef, or ordering beef. They'd be riding their gondola. I mean, they'd take over everything in the state far, uh, fairgrounds. God said, I've heard your prayer, Solomon, and I'm honored by the response of my people. But God realized, according to his foreknowledge, God knew that the people would not continue in their faithfulness. 
that Solomon's heart and the hearts of all of Israel, that they would begin to wander and grow cold and turn away from the Lord. And Solomon would eventually accumulate all these horses against the, uh, the commands of God, 112,000 to be exact. He would hoard gold and silver for his power and, and prosperity, and he would marry hundreds and hundreds of foreign women and, and had concubines too, and he had an immense amount of women. And as a result, then, he began to eventually follow the gods of these foreign women. And Israel followed suit. So Solomon directly disobeyed the specific commands of God, and as a result, and then also Solomon would have to demand taxes, higher exorbitant taxes, and food uh, offerings from the people of Israel and the 12 tribes and all the districts. We're talking daily, he would receive, he would, no, he would feed 30 sides of beef, 100 sheep, goats, 45 tons of flour and meal simply for the workers in his palace. And this was daily. Can you imagine the amount of food he would have had to amass? Their great prosperity and abundance would lead, therefore, to an attitude of self-sufficiency and materialism, greed, entitlement, which would in turn lead to spiritual pride and apathy and a loss of God's favor, as is always the case. We've been experiencing a spiritual implosion in our country because of years of disobedience, directly opposing God's commands, his law, his word. We're talking massive cases of idolatry and immorality and dishonesty and apathy and hypocrisy. But God proved his love to Israel and proves his love to us by being willing to discipline us as a good parent would discipline their children out of love. And so God told King Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.13, Solomon, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land and send a plague among my people, he did so for a reason. Shutting up the heavens would equate to the absence of God's blessing and favor over the nation of Israel. And, and the plague, plagues and locusts would be the absence of God's peace and well-being. Way more than what we experienced this past couple of weeks with the infestation of moths. You know, I, there was an absence of something else in, in my household. I went everywhere to find a fly swatter to get rid of those pesky moths. And I couldn't find one anywhere for the life of me until I finally found one in Hutchinson at Walmart on the top shelf. There were like three left. Someone said, you don't need a fly swatter, you need a vacuum cleaner. I said, ah, okay. Well, how can we experience a return of our spiritual health? How can we experience God's blessing and well-being in our land? Paul gives us uh, ways to respond in verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Who's God addressing here? Spiritual health begins with us, his people. 
God's not waiting for all the unbelievers in America to get their act together. He's not waiting, waiting to do something until we elect all the, you know, the best Supreme Court leaders that we can or the government officials in our land. He's not waiting for those days. I mean, it's important to vote, right? It's, we need Christian leaders. We should pray for them uh, to serve our country and our, our cities, communities, our state. We should do all that we can do, do to establish laws that would honor Christ. That's biblical. But without God in what he's prescribing here in Second Chronicles, then ultimately healing will never come to our nation. Never. You see, we as God's people who are called by his name, we are called to be the salt of this earth and the light of this world. And we know uh, in, in biblical times, salt was used as a preservative. They would rub salt on slabs of meat to preserve them so that they wouldn't spoil. And then salt was obviously used as we use it today as seasoning to bring flavor But if salt loses its saltiness, then it's going to become useless and the meat will rot even as it hangs there and the food won't taste any differently. And and then Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are the chosen ones to make this world a better place by offering our love in the name of Christ to others. And when God's people compromise and when we neglect to do so, then we will become apathetic and we will become busy and we will start to pursue idols above God and our land will then inevitably experience the decay that we're experiencing here in America. But fortunately, salt, the salt and light of Christians around the world, we are doing our thing and we're, we are experiencing revival in other countries in the world. We're making a great impact on the world stage. For example, according to director of YWAM, Youth with a Mission, Fred Markert, his picture's up here, in his delivery to over 600 pastors in this conference, his title was, What We Can Do About the Imminent Collapse of America. And this man has read over 1,000 books on the rise and fall of civilizations as a historian and as a scholar. He said this, in 1970, there were recorded 1.2 billion believers in Christ in our world. 2014, 2.6 billion, which doubled in over in 40 years. Never, ever happened in any religion in all of history. So God's doing something in our world. Poverty, he says, because of the rise in church and Christ followers, poverty in the world is decreasing. 1990, 52% of poverty, people were in poverty. 2014, decreased to 21%. By 2020, it was 10%. Atheism is also in decline. The church is growing Uh, Nietzsche said, who was an atheist, well-known atheist, he said, God is dead. Atheism is dead, said God, right? 1991, 4.4% were atheists worldwide. 2020, 2% declared themselves as atheists, and 
with this trajectory, by 2025, there will be 1.6 atheists in our world. Why? Well, because revival is taking place worldwide. It's breaking out in many countries since 1990, especially where churches are being planted. And even secular economists agree that Christianity is the reason that good things are happening. In fact, this atheist historian named Tom Holland, in his book called Dominion, How Christian Revolution Remade the World, he said the best thing that ever happened to the world is Jesus. He makes a better case for being a Christian than most Christians or pastors do. And he's an atheist. This interviewer was interviewing Tom Holland, and he said, but hey, you're an atheist. How can you make these claims? And this is what he he said, quote, I've been impacted by this reality so much so that I've begun to attend an Anglican church in my British village. I'm discovering the warmth of God there and moving toward a faith in Christ. In America, on the other hand, in America, it seems that Christianity is in decline in many ways because of internal decay. In fact, of the 26 world powers in all of history, like the Roman Empire and, and the British Empire and, and United States, of all the superpowers in all of history, there are 26 of them, the average reign of this empire was 238 years. America is a few years past that 238. We're at 244. We're six years past our expiration for what it, when a civilization should crash. If America were a piece of meat in, at Dillon's today, we'd look at the expiration date and throw it away. And so this guy, uh, in the next slide... Um, This guy, Fred Marker, he said there are seven phases of a superpower. Of course, for America then, taking that as an example, in 1776 was the outburst stage, you know. We are a new nation, and we're going to grow and celebrate. And then 1918, World War I, 1945, World War II, because we were the conquering, on the conquering side, the, the conquest. And we exerted our power on a global stage, United States. The third phase is commerce. Because we are now the world global power, then our businesses and our economy became strong. And then in 1950, if you were born in, before 1950, you remember the good old days, right? A father knows best and leave it to beaver in, the, in times like that. 1950, affluence, success, prosperity. And this is the most dangerous stage because we have to pass the test of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 8, where God said to Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness, he said, I'm going to allow you to wander to test you in the wilderness to see you if you'll obey me or not, because I'm right about to lead you into the promised land, a land that I'm giving to you uh, with homes you didn't build and crops you didn't plant and, and berries you didn't uh, plant or pick. It's for you, though. This is for you, but you have to pass this test of prosperity. The test of prosperity is harder than the test of poverty. Are you going to pass this test or will you forget me, God says. And then comes the intellect phase, 1965, where our academiacs went nuts. And they uh, began to make up things like, uh, as as we see today, there are now 107 different uh, labels for genders today. 
And it's emanating from our, a lot of our universities being taught to our college students. Critical theory, uh, where we begin to criticize uh, our civilization rather than study the hundred greatest books of our foundation of our culture and our civilization, now uh, we're beginning to read critical theories. And not all is bad, but a lot of it is because we're becoming very pessimistic and untrusting. Which led to the phase we're in now, decadence, 1985 to present. Decadence, decay, high divorce rates, drugs, alcoholism, education, breakdown of the family, economic decline, decay. And then, and then collapse is the final stage, the collapse of an empire. From the present to they're, they're predicting 2029, unless revival takes place. Every other empire has collapsed. But if we experience revival, God says in his word, then we need not collapse. And I don't know what collapse looks like, a well-known atheist and scholar and a historian um, from the East Coast, uh, she happens to be a transgendered woman. You know what she's calling for? She's calling for our public schools to teach Christianity in the Bible again. What made her famous globally in her academia is that she proved that the last sign of every civilization just before it collapsed was the acceptance of transgenderism. Gender confusion, 107 different categories to gender in America today. The next event, she says, will be the collapse of our decayed foundation. Our only hope is to teach Christianity in public schools. This coming from an atheist woman who happens to be a transgendered woman as well. So what exactly are we instructed to do if we're to prevent this and experience God's blessing in our part of the world, or anywhere for that matter? Well, he says four things. It's simple. Humble yourselves, you know. If, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, Peter says. Humble ourselves. It is our sin. It is our sin that is the issue. Not the sin of those bad, evil people out in the world. It is our sin. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. The London Times once asked a number of prominent Christian leader, or leaders uh, to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. And one particular pastor, famous in England, G.K. Chesterton, he responded, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. I'm what's wrong. He had a attitude of humility. And that's what Jesus said in his first beatitude. Blessed are the, what, poor in spirit. We're going to continue our study and Sermon on the Mount after the beatitudes now have concluded um, in a couple of weeks. But in the Sermon on the Mount, as I was reading up on it and and meditating on it, I, I realized that Jesus throughout the Gospels, he's confronting the religious leaders Constantly, and he was addressing them in the sermon as they were listening in to this sermon. What Jesus was doing, he was raising the bar of holiness, not so that we as religious people can hammer all the bad people, but he raised it to point to us as religious people that we don't measure up either. 
We all fall far short of the glory of God. So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Yes, I haven't committed adultery. I am, I am a holy guy, right? But Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You think you're here? He raised the bar of, of righteousness and holiness to let us know that you need to maintain a humble attitude before me. Then rather than pointing our fingers at others, we'll approach others with the same unconditional love that we received from God when we were sinners and, and when we were running away from God. He pursued us, and we will do the same thing as Christ's body. To establish levels of trust with others with the hope and prayer that they will come to know Christ as well through our relationship with them. How can we expect that lost people will act any differently than they do? I mean, they're acting consistent with who they are, right? And if we're pointing our finger at them, if we're shaming them in order to win them to Christ, what we're doing, we're just thinking, slamming the door in their face and getting them hopping mad at us. We need to establish relationships with people who are lost Paul says they're not the enemy. It's the powers and principalities who are deceiving them who are our enemies. You know, they're not our enemy. Jesus died for these folks. So we should be wise in the way we act toward outsiders, Paul said. Make the most of every opportunity, Ephesians. In 1 Peter, Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. How are we with people who we consider evil or, or depraved? Do we approach them with gentleness and respect? Humility. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, secondly, and pray. A pastor wrote about his tense leadership team meeting, his elder board meeting. He, he said, apparently, there was more agitation that night than agreement because after a lengthy discussion of disagreement, someone suggested, hey, time out. Why don't we stop and pray about this? To which another responded, has it come to that? Oftentimes, prayer is the last thing we consider. But our prayerlessness equates to pridefulness. Our praying assumes, though, a posture of humility and dependence on God. Lord, we need you. We need you. But sometimes we don't pray because we believe that our prayers really, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe they make that much of a difference. Our little feeble prayers. Well, Colin Smith in his book, Unlocking the Bible Stories, he comes up with this illustration. He said, in my homeland in Scotland, we are known for making whiskey, and whiskey is made by the process of distilling these liquids, and they're separated as they're boiling, and they're condensed at different temperatures, and when it's distilled, it becomes extremely potent. And then he says, let's think about prayer now. Prayer, our prayers might seem very feeble, but Jesus takes our prayers, and he distills them, he breaks them down, uh, and they, they come to him, but they don't seem powerful. But he takes them, and he makes them powerful. 
He distills them. He purifies our prayers. And then he makes them so powerful that he returns them to earth in something that's very powerful. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He said, when, when you, he had a vision. When we pray and our prayers ascend to heaven, the prayers are mixed with incense in heaven. And then fire will fall from heaven to earth. That's a wonderful picture of what prayer does, isn't it? Again, God receives our prayers. He mixes them with his anointing power. He sends them back to earth. He purifies all of our mixed motives and all of our doubts and all of our uh, disbeliefs. He, he takes our prayers, he purifies them, and, and he makes them effective on earth in a way that's more powerful than we could ever imagine. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Thirdly, seeking God's face is the pursuit of intimacy with God. You know, we can think of a thousand other priorities in our lives other than seeking his face because to seek God's face in intimacy with him, it, it means we have to set aside time from our busyness. It, it means we have to uh, set aside priorities and make him our top priority. And we're too stinking busy to do that. We got too much going on. Yet we can, we can devote ourselves to seeking out other things. Like we can seek out the perfect restaurant to eat at. Or, or we can seek out the perfect five-star movie to go watch. Or the most exciting game. Or, or we can shop for the most uh, the, the best car value or, or the best clothes, get the best deals or the biggest paying job or the highest level in our computer gaming. And we can do all these things with 100% of our attention. But if we have enough time, then we will we'll worship God with our friends. If we're not too busy or too tired or nothing else is going on, or we'll volunteer for ministry at church, but man, this is a busy season, oh my gosh. God promises, Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. When we don't, don't do that, then it's simply a spirit of idolatry. We're putting other things as higher priorities than knowing Christ and serving him. And then finally, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if my people called by my name will turn from their wicked ways, whose wicked ways? Our wicked ways. Christ followers, those who claim to be Christians, when we turn from our wicked ways, the closer we get to God, ironically, the more we will recognize our fallenness. Like when you walk into a bathroom in the morning and then the light's off and you look in the mirror and you think, I look fine for the day. You turn the light on, and you're not so fine. You know, the light, the light exposes, it reveals, right? And the closer we get to the light of, of God, light of Christ, the more he will reveal our fallenness and sinfulness. And our need for him and his forgiveness. And so he doesn't reveal that to us because he wants to shame us. He does it because he wants to deliver us. He wants us to open our eyes to the truth of who we are and our need for him. 
but we confess our sin and we ask for God's forgiveness, we can do that without ever committing to turn from our wicked ways, which is still unrepentance. I have a friend I went to college with in high school, college, and, um, and he always confessed, man, I have, a, I have this thing with pornography. I'm addicted to it. And he confessed it to me, and I prayed for him. We prayed together, and he confessed God's amazing grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace. And years later, I talked to him again. He's still addicted to pornography. But thank God for your amazing grace and your forgiveness, Lord. You are God of unconditional love. And he is, but my friend is still a mess. He's walking in defeat because he's not turning from his wicked ways. He's not truly repentant. We need to repent, turn away from our sin, and turn to God for his strength, not only as a person, but on behalf of our nation, our cities around McPherson, our state. Our country is is in a messy downward spiral. But there are four steps that we can take to to see a healing process, according to God. And they're all interrelated. One who is humble will certainly pray, and one who's praying will, will hopefully be seeking God's heart to know him more intimately. And, and as we come to know God more intimately, then we'll become aware of our own sinfulness and our own need to repent, and then we'll stop pointing our fingers at other people because we'll recognize that we, revival begins here, right here, and right here as a church. If we want to see our nation healed, it has to start here at the altar. Asbury Revival, Asbury College, they they experienced this on their campus. And and enemies on campus, they were hugging one another. People who disliked and disrespected one another. The Lord brought them to a a season of repentance where they, they saw the powerful love of Christ transform them. And And when we do that, we can expect God's inner healing to take place and revival to begin with us. 2 Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, here's God's promise, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And so, Lord, um, we ask for your healing. We ask for your revival. And I don't know if we need to ask for it because you're willing to give it to us. You're more than willing to revive our hearts. But you're waiting for us to do these four things that you require for our lives to turn around. In our situations, in our country even, to turn around, Lord. This world to turn around. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing great things in other countries even in the Middle East, Lord, places like Iran and Iraq and, and, and China, you're doing great things of revival because people are desperately turning to you while we in America are kind of cruising along in our prosperity, Lord. Thank you for the many blessings you've given to us, but Lord, may we not trust in them over you. Forgive us, Lord. And would you turn our hearts toward you once again right now During this communion time, would you please reveal to us what we need to do to make things right with you as individuals and then as a church, Lord, that you continue to lead us to bring healing to our communities here and and to just mission around the world, Lord. 
that we might be truly your effective salt of the earth and light of this world, I pray. Amen.